Hello and welcome to the TNW podcast. This is our brand new show in which we discuss the latest developments in the European technology ecosystem and feature interviews with some of the most interesting people in the industry. My name is Andrei Degeler. I am the head of media at TNW and host and producer of this podcast. And joining me today is our senior editor, Linia Algren. Hey, Linia, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you, Andre. A little bit the the Dutch winter voice. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we both we both have it a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah, but other than that, I'm I'm very excited about the first episode of our very own TNW podcast. Yes, it's been a very long time in the works, but uh, it's finally there. And in today's inaugural episode, we are going to discuss a couple of stories from the past week. We will talk about the things that we have learned, random as they may be. We will play an interview with uh, Konstantin van Oranje-Nassau and offer everyone listening to this a chance to win a ticket to TNW conference in Amsterdam in June. So stay tuned for what is coming next. Let's start with a story that we did cover over the past week. Uh, Linnea, what did you want to talk about? So it's a story that, yes, we did cover last week, but there's also been uh, a little bit of an update in the last couple of days. And this is Mistral AI, the Paris-based LLM large language model uh, developer, um, just secured a funding round of 385 million euros. It's a little bit less than there were whisperings about the week before. Um, but there were sources already familiar with the deal that said that it would see the company valued at around $2 billion, mm -hmm. which has come to pass. And this funding round was led by Andreas and Horowitz, and Lightspeed Ventures also participated in, in NVIDIA. And what is interesting with this is that it is showing the belief that there can be a European AI contender to the business of open AI, say. And speaking of open, Mistral is quite interesting in the fact that they've released their, their first model, which is the Mistral 7B, they've released it under the Apache 2.0 license, mm -hmm. which basically means that anyone can download it and then build a proprietary model on top. Um, and this is an approach that it separates the Gen AI world a little bit. So you have Google, for example, that is advocating against this approach. They say it's too dangerous to let developers loose <laughs> mm -hmm. with the models, with the foundation models. And then you have Meta, for example, that also released their the, the LLM, Lama. the Llama, yeah, under sort of an open source license. It's also a different approach for Mistral than, say, Aleph Alpha from Germany, mm -hmm. um, which is another European Gen AI very well funded. Very well funded. <laughs> I will not call them titans yet, but let's say one of the one of the major contenders for the European AI crown. And they only received their funding from European funders in the last round, which was the 550 million euro. Um, These amounts are just blowing my mind, honestly. Yeah. So uh, even this uh, round, 385 million euros, uh, it's a Series A, technically, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. So they had a seed funding uh, this summer, which was reportedly the largest European seed funding round ever, which was 105 million mm -hmm, mm -hmm. euros. And the company is now valued, obviously, at $2 billion, which is seven months after its founding. But what differs the... The approach from LF Alpha when it comes to the funding is that LF Alpha took on money only from European investors except for a small ticket from Hewlett Packard, mm -hmm. which is US based. And this obviously ties in also to the, I would say, the Gen AI FOMO <laughs> that has been present from especially Germany and France, a little bit also Italy. Uh, when it comes to negotiating the EU AI Act, right. um, which we finally saw a result for on late on Friday, close mm -hmm. to midnight. Um, obviously, the negotiations on what it will actually entail in detail is still ongoing uh, and will take some time yet to hash out. But So there's been a big week for, for European AI. Yeah, this is going to be a very interesting time. And do you think uh, we're going to hear any uh, new details uh, before Christmas on the act? Um, I hope so. So the stickiest parts were the rules for foundation models, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, whether it would be binding rules or a code of conduct, etc. And speaking of Mistral, this is something that uh, the founder, Artur Mensch, uh, was against, right? Yes. 
Absolutely. So he was he was basically lobbying for foundation models being exempt uh, from from regulation, and then uh, he was uh, saying that most of the attention of the regulators should be at the companies who are actually building something on top of those models. Yes, we will have to wait and see exactly what the foundation models regulations will be. Yet it's quite vague the formulation that the commission has released. Uh, so this will be one of the interesting things to come out over the negotiations now in the following days. And I think there's still plenty of room for lobbying, for example. And also from governments, because uh, they have agreed with the negotiators that there will be a few instances where they will be allowed to use biometric mm -hmm. um, facial recognitions mm -hmm. uh, remotely in public spaces. So this was also one of the major sticking points. So we will wait and see what comes out and what kind of compromises they will agree upon. Right. But one way or the other, it's going to take at least a year and a half until uh, the act uh, has any legal uh, force, right? Yes, before it actually comes into force. I see. But back to Mistral, I, I wanted to discuss a couple of things about uh, Mistral. And uh, I was reading the story the other day and uh, a part of the statement uh, which Mansha issued uh, was uh, saying uh, this. Since the creation of Mistral AI in May, we have been pursuing a clear trajectory, that of creating a European champion with a global vocation in generative artificial intelligence based on an open, responsible and decentralized approach to technology. So this, uh, this was the statement. And uh, what I was wondering, do you understand what decentralized means in this case? Yes, yeah, so it means that you can, instead of just interacting with the model through an interface, like you say you do through ChatGPT uh, via the app, developers can download the model. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then, and then that would build means, okay. on top of that, yeah. I understand. <clears throat> and uh, do we know what data uh, the model of Mistral was trained on? Uh, no, we don't. So here, open is a little bit a relative term, I would say. So Mistral has not disclosed the data mm -hmm. training sets for the model. That's uh, that's really interesting because this is some this is the first thing that I would expect uh, generally to see sort of disclosed to when someone claims to be an open uh, an open innovation company. Uh, you uh, would imagine yes, but Arthur Mensch, who you mentioned, who is by the way with his uh, co-founders uh, Lacroix and Lampel, they form their um, initials actually spell LLM. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> which is quite a little fun uh, detail. But he, when he was speaking at Slush the other week in Helsinki, he said that they don't really consider themselves open source. They say mm -hmm. their models are open wide. And that even if you were to disclose the data training sets, um, you still would not know exactly what goes on inside the model because obviously it's a black box model. Yeah, right. So you can give the weight of the model, etc., but there are still things that wouldn't be open per se. Okay, well, then I guess my only hope is that uh, with the AI Act, uh, there will be a clause uh, that would make uh, model manufacturers to actually disclose what type of uh, what type of data went into the model itself. Yeah, so this is one of the things that, where foundation models will be categorized mm -hmm. in, the, in the risk-based approach that the EU AI Act has. So for high-risk models, for example, you will need to disclose the, the data training sets. Mm -hmm. And how do they define high risk then? So this would be systems that um, relate to things such as critical infrastructures, medical devices, access to educational institutions, or for recruiting people or law enforcement, etc. So they will need to provide high quality of data sets, they will need to log their activity, have detailed documentation, human oversight, and also a high level of robustness in cybersecurity. Right, that makes a lot of sense on paper, so let's see where it actually ends up. Okay, so the last remark that I really wanted to make about uh, this is that so they've just uh, raised these 385 million euros just a few months after raising 105 million euros in their seed round. Does it actually mean that they have already spent most of that first round? How much does it even cost to train uh, to train a uh, large language model in this case? Oh, it costs plenty. 
Uh, and this is one of the things with large language models is, for example, OpenAI um, CEO, <laughs> back and forth CEO, Sam Altman, he has said that at some point it just makes no sense to keep making models bigger and bigger mm-hmm. um, because the it's just such diminishing returns for the money that you put into training the model. Right. Well, I think uh, I think Mistral is not there yet, right? Their their model is just seven billion uh, tokens, which is considered not big at all. Yeah, seven point three is this one. But Mensch did mention also when speaking at Slush that they have plenty of in-house projects ongoing mm-hmm. and that they will release new models uh, before the end of the year. So we'll see. Right. Looking forward. Maybe for uh, for the listeners who are more technically inclined, it would be a great uh, Christmas um, attraction to download one of those models and play around with it. Yes, I would love to. If I if I could code a bit better, I would love mm-hmm. to do that as well. Now let's move to the next story, and uh, what we what we have uh, what we have thought about is that it's a great idea, of course, to discuss the stories that we do cover here at uh, TNW. But also, there are always stories that we do not cover for one reason or the other. So, for the next rubric, we wanted to uh, choose a story that we didn't cover and still discuss it, uh, just to make sure that our listeners get uh, the most information uh, that uh, they need. So, uh, Linia, what did you what do you think of? What is the best, most interesting story that we didn't cover? So I think something that flew a little bit under the radar, unless you're particularly interested in aerospace and um, a little bit of an avgeek, um, which I am, <laughs> is that Lilium Jet, which is a Munich-based EVTOL startup, EVTOL stands for Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing Vehicle, um, had the arrival of its first complete fuselage to the final assembly line um, in its facilities in Bavaria. This means that it can actually commence production. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is something of a watershed moment, they're naming it, but I would agree because they're shifting from the design phase to industrialization. Um, And it's something that's significant, I would say, for all EVTOL startups um, in terms of certification and the trajectory to go there um, and their collaboration with the ASA, etc. And actually the first seven aircraft to be to come off of the final assembly line will be used for EASA certification test flight campaigns. And then the deliveries are expected in early 2026. Although we have seen with EVTOLs thus far that startups keep pushing the date forward. So I would expect us to see a little bit more of a delay in that, but still the fact that production has actually commenced for the full scale mm-hmm. um, aircraft is really exciting. Um, and also for the Lilium Jet, I think it's interesting because it is a publicly traded company on NASDAQ, even though they have raised $1 billion in funding. Um, and they have a 745 order pipeline already. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a little bit different because the Lilium jet is a jet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an all-electric zero-emission jet as opposed to the rotating wing um, EVTOLs mm-hmm. that we are seeing for most startups. So it's a very interesting addition to... So it's closer to the actual plane when you when you look at it. When you look at it, yes, it looks like a little jet. It also has six seats plus mm-hmm. one pilot, um, as opposed to the EVTOLs that we are seeing that have four seats and one pilot. So it's basically a taxi. It, it, it's supposed to be used as a so sort of taxi. I would say more regional air traffic mm-hmm. even, whereas the EVTOLs that have four seats and one pilot are more could be considered urban air taxis or regional air taxis. But I would say this can actually be used for um, slightly broader applications. So this is this is really interesting news also, I think, for Lilium as a company, because yes, it is a publicly traded uh, company, but uh, over the summer, I think uh, many of us uh, read stories about uh, the trouble within the company. It was almost delisted uh, from NASDAQ because the share price uh, went uh, below uh, one US dollar uh, for a while. So I, I really wonder if if everything is going okay and if, everything, if they're actually going to be able to uh, follow through with all these uh, orders. Uh, with all the plans, uh, with building and everything. But I think they also uh, signed a partnership with Lufthansa, didn't they? So, yes. So, Lilium and Lufthansa signed a memorandum of understanding a couple of days ago. And they're going to explore a strategic partnership on electric vertical takeoff and landing um, aircraft operation across Europe. 
So no one's promising anything at this point, uh, but I guess it's definitely good news uh, for the company and for the industry. I would say so. And what I think what we've seen so far is that these uh, MOUs concerning uh, exploring a partnership or exploring what EVTOL or advanced air mobility uh, operations will look like have gone on to actually become fixed agreements when it comes to partnerships. All right, and it is time to move to the next part of the podcast, which I like a lot. And this is uh, uh, something uh, that we have learned uh, uh, over the past week. So each of us uh, has uh, brought to the table one uh, learning uh, from these uh, past few days. Uh, Linnea, you can start. What did you learn this week? So I will start with, well, um, so Timothée Chalamet, and for those of you, like, like Andre, <laughs> who did not recognize that name right away. He is an incredibly popular actor. Um, he's known for movies like Call Me By Your Name and Wonka, which is in theaters now. Uh, but also, I would assume, perhaps most known to our audience, Paul Atreides, um, in, the, in my mind, at least, magnificent remake of uh, Dune. Um, anyway, so Timothée Chalamet introduced the Game of the Year Award at Game Awards last week. Uh, which, by the way, went to Larian studio, Studios for Baldur's Gate Free, and its founder and CEO, Sven, accepted the award in his plated armor, which was quite epic. If you haven't seen it, please go and, and Google and find it for yourself. Timothy Chalamet was himself introduced as YouTuber Modded Controller 360. And so it turns out that in his very early teens, uh, Chalamet ran a YouTube channel in which he spray-painted Xbox controllers. Um, and then he sold them, I'm assuming not the controllers, but actually the artwork that he did on them for, for $10. Uh, and after digging about a little, we found out that he made $30 off of this project. There are free videos, apparently, on the YouTube channel. Um, so, But I would say if you're sitting on a modded controller 360 painted Xbox controller right now, we can safely say that it's worth quite a lot more money than what you paid for it. Um, so you might want to check your discarded electronics store. See wow. what's lying about. And that's like probably one of the most unlikely collector's items. <laughs> yeah, and there's around. only three of them, you know, so could be worth Very it. Very rare. Yeah. Great. Okay. What did you learn? Uh, my learning is uh, is actually still about AI because as I was uh, reading uh, reading more about uh, Mistral's models and the other models, uh, I went into the question of guard railing, a uh, bit of a rabbit hole really, uh, trying to understand how it is actually done. So how can you actually restrict uh, a large language model uh, to only give answers to prompts that are not... Uh, are not toxic, for example, are not uh, dangerous, are not biased, and so on and so forth. So what I what I learned is that there are generally, as far as I understand at this point, two ways of uh, guard drilling, one of which is literally adding additional prompts, appending additional prompts to every prompt that uh, the user sends into the model. And that's definitely that's uh, what uh, Mistral 7b does. So it's uh, straight from the documentation. Uh, there is uh, a thing that's called safe mode uh, that the developers can add to uh, their apps, and if the save mode is turned on, then uh, here is uh, uh, what uh, prompt uh, gets appended to everything that the user sends to the model. Always assist with care, respect, and truth. Respond with utmost utility, yet securely. Avoid harmful, unethical, prejudiced, or negative content. Ensure replies promote fairness and positivity. So this is literally what this is literally a prompt uh, that uh, Mistral 7B would receive before anything that uh, the user sends them if uh, the safe mode is turned on. Might be a bit more useful for society than painted Xbox controllers. Would be. <laughs> but then it turns out that also another safety layer that's uh, increasingly being used is Simply, very simply speaking, an extra LLM, a second LLM that uh, sits on top of the first LLM that literally reads the answers and checks them for uh, for being sort of in uh, being aligned uh, with uh, with the guardrails uh, that the company has come up with. I feel like this would uh, require a data set ethics. 
potentially. Most probably does. I know for sure that NVIDIA has uh, has re- released uh, this type of thing that could be used by different developers. I have not been able to go very deep into this yet, but I'm really interested, so I'm definitely going to read up. If you happen to know uh, any interesting documents, any interesting uh, articles on this, uh, please uh, send it to me. I will definitely read them and report back. Yeah, I think going forward as well, what we will see is um, the discussion continuing, of course, around ethics and, and bias when it comes to generative AI. Um, and so the solutions will definitely need to take on different forms depending mm-hmm. on depending on if we're talking about developers or if we're talking about the end user, etc. So this is um, it's quite encouraging. At least it is. It is. So let's just hope that uh, we get uh, somewhere with this. In the meantime, it is time for the featured interview of uh, this episode. And today's interview is uh, with uh, Konstantin van Oranje-Nassau, whom my colleague Yeni described at an event the other day as our favorite prince. And uh, yes, he's indeed a brother of uh, King Willem Alexander of the Netherlands and member of the Dutch Royal House. But also, he is a very well-known figure in the local startup ecosystem. Because over the past seven years or so, Konstantin has uh, held the title of Special Envoy in startup support initiatives that were fully or partially funded by the Dutch government. The earlier one was called Startup Delta, that's uh, currently defunct, and the current one is called TechLeap.nl, and it's focused on helping scale-ups to scale more successfully. So earlier this year, uh, the Dutch government decided to cut the budget of uh, TechLeap.nl in half, uh, prompting some changes within the organization. So we talked about this during the interview, among a whole lot of other things such as a European startup policy, funding gap for deep tech startups, and so much more. The interview was recorded earlier this year at a tech barbecue conference in Copenhagen. So here it is. Enjoy and stay tuned for the giveaway that's coming next. Constantine, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for being here. No, thanks for having me. Now, uh, I wanted to start uh, uh, the conversation with uh, uh, with your own uh, background. So uh, what is it that uh, uh, you uh, have been doing so far that brought you uh, to work uh, uh, with the Tech Leap? Oh, wow. Um, so how far back do you want to go? Uh, well, all the way back, I guess. Okay. Well, okay. Uh, so I went to business school and then I went to Booz Allen and Hamilton. And there I did a report on... Uh, um, how you know, the digital readiness of of the UK compared to a number of other countries, and then I did I wrote a, re- a report for World Economic Forum, and I got picked up by uh, the Rand Corporation, and they wanted somebody in Brussels doing digital. So I kind of switched from being a general management consultant to a digital space, and we did policy research around um, how digital technology was affecting the economy, social relations, and you know what kind of policies were required. And uh, and then I moved to European Commission, became the head of cabinet of uh, Nelly Kroos, who was the vice president then for the right. digital agenda. So it was digital, and we we were looking for ambassadors for our cause. We found them with you know startups, you know next gen, uh, you know companies that were born digital. Uh, we were struggling to convince um, corporates, uh, you know, that the digital transition, internet, was really transversal. And not just a kind of a vertical. And, and uh, that was what time? This was 2010, taking? right? And uh, and so we started to interact a lot with the, with uh, with startups. Uh, Nelly went to all the events at that time from Le Web, and you had picnic, and you had uh, campus party, those things. So in the early days, and uh, and then when I was done at the European Commission, I set up my own little company for uh, corporate innovation. And uh, we organized a big event uh, called Startup Fest Europe. Uh, we brought some. Uh, you know, tech luminaries from uh, Silicon Valley to the Netherlands and it was a really big event. And then the government asked me to take on this role. So I've been kind of iterating that uh, first startup Delta and now Tech Leap, um, first focusing very much on kind of connecting what is there, telling the story, then uh, trying to remove certain barriers for entrepreneurship. And uh, and now we are mostly focused on programs uh, with and for founders um, and building a community. So, so how do how do you describe uh, TechLeap now when you're asked? TechLeap is a is a hybrid organization doing basically two things. One is programs with uh, with and for founders and building a community, and on the other hand, we do uh, kind of policy advice and interventions. So we gather a lot of data, we report, mm-hmm. we uh, try to help the government uh, draft better policies that are you know support and tech entrepreneurship. So it can be ranging from migration, fiscal policy to support early stage investment 
to uh, um, also looking at how we um, how we improve the education system to have kind of to fill some of the vacancies that we have in the sector. Uh, and a, an important uh, topic is diversity. How do we create, mm -hmm. uh, give a, you know, make the tech the tech sector more diverse? And what do you think have been some of the most uh, important uh, changes uh, that uh, you helped move forward over these years? Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, it's always a good question. So we have, uh, so we have a number of KPIs, but I think in fact um, um, the the biggest successes are probably that there's a cultural shift that. Uh, Tech and uh, and startups have become a real feature. Also, in economic policy, has become much more strategic. I think the, there's a much stronger community now. I think people know much better what's going on. Um, uh, there's a much more lively VC uh, sector. Uh, so there's access to capital has improved tremendously. But a lot of knowledge has has been kind of created around uh, how to scale companies, how to grow them, and, and we're now really looking at where the where there are still big bottlenecks, like in the education and, and, and university system around tech transfer. So how are we going to get you know, science to translate to, to new businesses? And uh, so one of the features there is that we kind of, uh, with, with the universities, um, developed a, um, uh, uh, standard term sheets mm -hmm. so that are much okay. more um, entrepreneur friendly. Um, another thing, it's actually was at the start of TechLeap when COVID hit that we, uh, we um, in really short time, we developed uh, a loan scheme uh, to bridge, um, you know, the bridge, bridge loans um, through convertibles. And uh, we supported some, uh, uh, I don't know how many companies in the end, there's only more than 2,000 companies uh, requested a loan. In total, 350 million was, uh, uh, was actually allocated to, uh, to tech companies. Um, and that really helped the sector through the year, the COVID. So those kind of interventions I'm most proud of. And most recently, we attracted the NATO, the 1 billion NATO right. Innovation Fund to uh, to establish itself in the Netherlands. That was also uh, a, a bit of a success. So, uh, yeah. But How big of an effort was that? We're not done yet. Oh, it's, it's you know, working with two government departments uh, and... Um, uh, working, you know, in, in a very regulated uh, space is uh, is always uh, is always difficult, and we're not we were not actually geared to do that. We uh, it was actually one of my uh, employees, and she was uh, she was kind of head of she's head of uh, investor relations, and uh, um, Evelyn de Vries she's called. She's uh, uh, she just put her claws into this and said, "I mean, we're going to get we're going to get this." I said, "You know, this is not your actual job, but if you know, if if you want to spend time on this, go for it." And uh, she did a remarkable job, uh, and it kind of worked out. So, wow, oh. yeah, that's very yeah we have to stay flexible, you know, and you have to be opportunistic as well. So, no, absolutely. Uh, and then, I mean, uh, there are uh, governmental or uh, government adjacent organizations uh, similar to TechLeap in uh, uh, many European countries. I think in every European country you have something like this. Uh, how do you think TechLeap is different? Because you probably have met uh, the, the other organizations, you know how they work. Yeah, they're all they're all slightly different. I think we we are you can best compare us to Tech Nation, uh, but then uh, Tech Nation was a few years ahead of us. So uh, we do programs and more systemic interventions. Um, we've been shifting from being public privately funded to fully public funded, and now we are again going to more private funding. So, uh, and then some of the organizations are more like unions, or no, I call them uh, associations. So, representing startups, like in Germany, the Deutsche Startup Verband. I think in Sweden there isn't really something like like this. There are kind of more loose initiatives. Uh, then you know, so it's it's a very different kind of its whole landscape of interventions and everything kind of suits your country. Like in France, you have uh, uh, La French Tech, which is more government uh, focused and, and driven by government, uh, whereas we are an independent foundation and we're de deliberately outside of government. So uh, some systems are more top down uh, and more kind of directive. Um, ours is very bottom up. So every they're all kind of trying to do more or less the same, but in the, the way that suits their country best. Yeah, well, it's nice to be outside of the government for uh, some purposes, but uh, sometimes it ends up uh, with uh, your funding being cut in half, as, as has happened. Yeah, that, yeah, but so, um, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Government is not always the most reliable partner because they, uh, you know, there's a budget cuts and there's different priorities. Uh, so I would advise anyone in, a, in, in this space 
to to also try to have one leg outside of the government. And so we we are an independent foundation, and we were already working uh, to kind of privatize a number of our activities uh, that we felt that you know that could be funded uh, separately, and were much more kind of services to companies mm-hmm. that also it's quite. Yeah, you know, I don't think we really need the government to fund those things. So uh, we actually uh, we think it's a, it's actually a good thing. Uh, but yeah, um, if you depend completely on the government, then uh, you you are pretty. Uh, uh, let's say you have to follow their logic, and uh, and the logic of government is not always the same as the logic of uh, of tech uh, founders and investors. So. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And so so you're working with the with the Dutch ecosystem, and uh, what do you think is the is the future of this ecosystem? What are the main issues that have to be dealt with at this point? So capital is still an issue. I think uh, you know SaaS fintech companies that are successful that kind of know the, the milestones and you know and they'll find international investors for the later rounds. So that they'll and there's enough domestic capital for the early rounds. Um, so that's uh, still an, I think um, so later rounds still an issue. Uh, the rounds in the Netherlands are still smaller than in for instance Germany, UK, uh, definitely than the US. So companies have a harder time. Uh, competing um, and growing and scaling, so so that's an issue. Um, I think um, where we're seeing now really is the shift towards uh, the, the harder to uh, to fund activities like in deep tech, where governments see more strategic gain like in semiconductors, you know, quantum computing, uh, but also biotech, medtech, these things. Um, and so you're working with a different set of stakeholders like universities, tech transfer offices, uh, public funding organizations. And so to make them actually, you know, more, uh, more effective, more professional is, uh, as a whole set as a whole different set of challenges, I would say, but also there we are looking at the founders. So try to find the successful founders from that have emerged from the system. Uh, bring their lessons back uh, to uh, to improve uh, these practices. Um, help them also to coach and mentor the next generation of founders so that they can scale faster. So you know some of the playbook is the same, mm-hmm. uh, but we're working with many many uh, different stakeholders now. And would you say that these uh, uh, deep tech uh, new deep tech initiatives uh, can be or are the future of the ecosystem? Is that what the Netherlands should specialize in, let's say, as a as a tech ecosystem at this point? Well, I, th- I think so, but I don't think you should separate them completely. I think um, um, so. Um, a lot of the capital that is made on successful. Uh, SaaS and fintech companies is now actually flowing into these other categories. Uh, and um, if that wouldn't happen, the capital would be mostly public. Uh, it would be the traditional university-driven kind of uh, innovation, which is very linear and, and typically doesn't doesn't produce that much, you know, many successful companies. So you want... Um, you want a private wealth to go back into the system, and and many actually people that made money in tech um, are concerned about the you know the large kind of problems in the world. So they uh, you know climate change, uh, the 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 food transition, energy transition, those kind of things. So they actually are willing to invest, and not just invest in an NGO or uh, you know in, in activism, but also in in new uh, new businesses. And uh, so there, I think there is a lot of potential there. Uh, and that's why we also, you know, we try to uh, convince the government that uh, to make it fiscally attractive mm-hmm. for those uh, those individuals to invest in the really risky early stages of those companies. Uh, that's a that is potentially a really good uh, policy to follow. What kind of policy would that be to make it more attractive? I think the UK has a very good, um, uh, basically done that for 20 years uh, or more now. I think even 25 years. Uh, whereby, uh, if you invest in uh, as a, kind of an informal in a in a tech company or an innovative company, mm-hmm. and you have to define that, but um, that you can uh, you can write off your your downside, so right. make it tax deductible, and then you can make uh, a reinvestment. Um, you can stimulate reinvestment as well. So if you have an exit, if you reinvest, uh, then you um, you don't have to pay taxes over the returns. This is something which is happening actually in real estate. So if you if you sell a building, you know if you then re- Reinvest in in another another piece of real estate, then you know you can defer your taxes, mm-hmm. and that's something that really helps uh, keep the money in the system and keep it also with the people, you know, with the experts. So it's, instead of 
raising taxes, go to the government, government then um, have spending programs, you know, to support innovation. Mm-hmm. It's better to just leave it in the system right, and make right, sure right. that that innovators and entrepreneurs support the next generation of entrepreneurs. And in your experience, is it realistic uh, that uh, these policy changes would happen? Um, time is a factor. <laughs> so, <laughs> realistic. Uh, Many people have said it was not realistic, uh, but we've been going at this now for for quite a while, and slowly you see that there is uh, there's more appetite for this, and uh, and as um, tech has become more strategic, and governments are actually looking more creatively at at how to support it, and not just through subsidies, but also other mechanisms. And fiscal mechanism is actually a very effective one because it doesn't cost you anything, uh, and if you do it well, your tax base actually grows and does, you know, so you do have more returns as well. So it just, they, they don't come in that budget year, they come a bit later. Right. There's also been a more of a European-wide movement for uh, better taxation for stock options. Is that also something that's yeah, important? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's our favorite topic. <laughs> Are there, have there been any, uh, have there been any changes in the Netherlands? Yeah, so we, we we came halfway. So it means that you um, you only pay taxes when there's a liquidity moment. So you don't have to pay taxes over over if, uh, when you were assigned uh, the yeah. So it was like a fictitious value, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know yeah, exactly. if this, the shares are ever going to vest. So you you basically uh, so that was an advantage, but it's still seen as income. So it means that you pay income tax, which right. is not not fair because the the founders and the investors pay uh, yes pay capital capital, capital gains, gains yeah. tax. And so why should an employee not pay capital gains tax? So that's still a part that we're, we're working on. Um, and then, uh, and then you know, it's also working with the government that, you know, that you don't make sure that you don't become collateral damage uh, because we now have a tax reform mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's always a risk that, uh, you know, we've kind of been sweating for years and years to get uh, um, a good, um, good fiscal treatment of uh, share options. And then through a more generic fiscal rule and suddenly this all, you know, pushed aside again. So uh, it's a topic that keeps us busy. So what is uh, so what is your uh, your role now? Is it the same as it was uh, at TechLeap? Has it changed uh, after the uh, uh, latest uh, changes in the organization? Yeah. So yeah, to make clear, I don't know if the of your your listeners know, but you know, our, indeed, our budget was was not cut. Actually, our our program was supposed to stop uh, end of June this year. And uh, and we talked with the government. So what do we want to do next? You know, it doesn't need a, maybe a tech leap. It could mm-hmm, be another mm-hmm. organization or nothing. I mean, you don't always need governments to do this kind of stuff. We came to the conclusion, or they came to the conclusion, that tech leap was actually useful and it was a useful brand, and you know, we're doing some useful stuff. So they wanted to extend it. So we had a three-year extension, but at about half of the budget. But it does allow us to uh, now to go to the market and uh, and, and become more commercial. Um, and that's actually my change in role as well. Uh, it's much more about looking for partnerships, uh, you know, win-win collaborations with with corporates, with uh, tech founders, with all kinds of service companies that can support uh, the work we're doing. Um, and uh, and and also, you know, we we provided a lot of services for free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is nice, uh, nice for the people that receive them. But also, you know, you know, it's it, you don't have to ask yourself some of the hard questions. And now, when you know, we might turn to paid services. Then obviously, uh, there's also the demands will be um, higher on you know the part of our clients. You know, they will not just be people receiving something for free, but they will demand something. So I think that's very healthy. And so it forces us to be more entrepreneurial, more service oriented. And also in my role, you know, it's going to be, I'll be more going out there, reaching out to partners. Right. And uh, yeah, so it will change a bit. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, of course, it's because the next web is headquartered in Amsterdam. So obviously, we have been uh, following uh, the changes at TechLeap, yeah. uh, which is why I was uh, phrasing the question yeah. this way. And speaking of uh, being based in the Netherlands, I have one uh, one request. If you are ever in conversation with uh, governmental organizations about naming for some initiatives, can we stop naming things deltas, please? Because we have quantum delta, we have photonics delta, and we used to have startup delta. Uh, yeah, people love delta. <laughs> yeah, you, you exactly. Well, you have you have valleys too, right? You got oh, yeah, El Valley, this valley, that way. So I guess Delta gives it a bit of a Dutch angle. But people and outside and don't even know why it's called Delta. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> we are uh, we are obsessed that we are a river Delta, and that's uh, basically some of the biggest rivers of Europe and in the Netherlands. So we have uh, you know, so it's something we associate ourselves with. With it's like a soggy, swampy area which we have uh, proudly over time kind of turned into landmass 
and uh, we live on. So we actually are, are pretty proud of deltas. Right. And uh, and so speaking of quantum and photonics, uh, so I see that these uh, two, uh, among others, of course, uh, these two topics are becoming pretty important for the for the ecosystem. Is that something that you also see? Yeah, I mean, we are kind of looking at what 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 the future brings, and now these some of these technologies be, are becoming investable, and so uh, so photonics it may be a bit earlier than than quantum, but quantum has a whole kind of scientific uh, uh, customer base that's already, and and of course there's some some really big companies investing in this, so uh, yeah, it's it, the interesting part there is that we're seeing. Uh, for the first time, uh, venture building and support are happening at a really early stage of uh, the technology development, uh, much earlier than uh, you know than traditionally you know emerging out of universities because it was basically not prioritized. It was you know science prioritized. You write your papers and you know that's and citations are really important, but actually building businesses and making them successful wasn't so. Uh, and that's now different. And so we have, uh, I think, some 36 um, quantum companies in, in the Netherlands, of which um, I think 18 are within the portfolio of Quantum Delta, and 10 are now kind of have international investors on board. So that's going, that's going pretty, pretty well. Uh, still, you know, it could be much more strategic and could grow that. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's been, definitely been a priority area for us. Right. And so we are now in uh, Copenhagen at a, a tech barbecue conference. Uh, and I was uh, I was thinking we could talk a little bit about the European tech ecosystem. Uh, the first question here being uh, from a previous interview with you that I have heard, you were saying that there is no such thing as European tech ecosystem. Yeah. Okay. Can you can yeah. you elaborate on that? <laughs> so I no, well, I think it's there is a lot of collaboration more and more. Um, but I think uh, it all depends on the definition of ecosystem. So there's no U.S. ecosystem either. There's, uh, there's Silicon Valley, there's Boston. Um, you, and so that's, I think, more the size where you should look at ecosystems. So, you know, around Amsterdam. And we're actually trying to do this at a national scale, which is already quite hard. So the people doing... Uh, um, you know, uh, Megatronica in 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 Eindhoven. You know, building uh, 3D printing machines and all that. You know, they don't particularly connect with the SaaS communities of Amsterdam, um, and uh, and much of the funding actually is in Amsterdam. You know, for these more peripheral areas, and um, and so just pulling that together, um, also between sectors, so that you know the biotech sector is actually interacting with uh, with you know some of the founders in in fintech, just like sharing entrepreneurial stories, you know, getting access to different sources of capital, these kind of things is not, uh, is, is not happening by itself. Um, so when I then hear about European um, ecosystem, I understand that we do try to do more. There are certain instruments that are cross-border. Many of our investors are now investing across Europe, more mostly kind of Nordic, uh, Nordic and UK, or you know the Dutch uh, countries, Germany and Austria, Switzerland. So yeah, it's 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 kind of starting to grow, but you could not call that an ecosystem. So what you're saying is that it's uh, already hard enough to put together an ecosystem on the level of the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. And there you you have a lot of common instruments and stuff. But still, you know what it is about. If you just take uh, the ecosystem around uh, right in the south of the country. So you have a big company called ASML. You got Philips, NXP, a few of those companies. Uh, they shed their talent and they start new companies. Uh, they might have corporate venturing uh, funds, so they, uh, they're investing in that community. Uh, then you, know, you have a university that's producing the talent, so those are all kind of interacting uh, forces and relationships. Uh, that's an ecosystem. And, um, and you know, you already just, just think, for instance, Germany, um, what's happening in, you know, in Bayern is really not connecting really well with what's happening in, in, in Hamburg or in Berlin. And uh, so to say, you know, that you have a European ecosystem is, uh, is, is I think, a far dream and might not even be uh, uh, desirable because you need, a, you also need a certain pride in, uh, in a certain location and people feel proud about a city uh, or, you know, so that's, that's kind of a unit that works well or maybe a province or maybe, a, you know, even a country. But to do that at the European level is difficult. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like uh, my view has uh, for a long time been that we really need to do a bit more to really connect, uh, connect to Europe as an ecosystem and in general sort of to, to have a, a bit of, a, to, to have this single layer 
be it uh, technological or uh, cultural or in any other way, uh, just to have this connection uh, between the region, as it is, for example, uh, in the U.S., which is one country, of course, very different, but still. Yeah, but also in the U.S., it's not obvious, right? You so and they have they have, they have the you know the Delaware um, Incorporation, which is. And and you got uh, the Silicon Valley venture capital model, which has been copied. But there's still a lot of differences between different country, different states. Um, I I think you know if you if you should basically I think you should flip it, not look at tech ecosystems or whatever, but look at what does an entrepreneur need. Mm-hmm. So I'm a I'm a Danish entrepreneur, and I am in uh, you know in biotech. Where does the money come from? You know, where is the the large pharma company that might actually acquire me or you know my you know my my molecule that I've been developing? Uh, and that should, if we can organize that at a European level, so that it's much easier to acquire companies, to invest in companies, to that that would already be great. Does it's not an ecosystem yet, but that's like there are certain layers of the of the kind of the 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 the, the stack of of like, inputs that you need as a uh, as a startup founder that uh, that we could organize more at the European level. Uh, for instance, the access to talent um, that's already much better. It's quite easy, you know, from from talent across Europe to to move to the places where uh, most entrepreneurial activity is. So those those things are definitely uh, improving. Yeah, and, no, um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but what we also need to organize on the European level, I think, is the policy. Uh, we already have the DSA, DMA, and now there is a lot of conversation about AI policy on the European level, on the national level. Uh, do, you have, do you have a view on that? Well, I think it's good we have European norms. I do think that some of these, these developments, like AI, go so fast, it's very hard to... Um, to regulate anything in that space. So you have to be very careful that you're not kind of uh, also uh, closing a door on innovation. Um, so I've, I've, I've mixed feelings in the fact that we as Europe have become very good at regulating but not really good at creating. And there has to be a balance there. So uh, we, you, know, you can't regulate yourself into being a productive, innovative continent. So uh, by blocking others, we're not kind of supporting ourselves. And, um, and so I think, you know, if we can get a good balance in uh, also seeking opportunities in tech and uh, having a more, um, a more innovation policy, more support for entrepreneurs, and actually allowing those companies in Europe to grow, to become the next ASMLs or next ARMS, you know, these kind of companies, we need many more of those. And uh, we should avoid or be careful that our, our, you know, our regulation uh, stops them from, uh, from actually coming, uh, developing into that size. So do you think then there is, that there is too much regulation at this point? Well, I think there's a, there's a very strong focus on regulation and that's, there's most traction around regulation. The European Union is uh, particularly good at regulation and setting standards. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, but we also need to, on the, on the supporting business side, uh, we might need to do more. I mean, we are already seeing that uh, the state aid rules are kind of released a bit or relaxed a bit so that there's more opportunity to invest in uh, in areas like uh, um, uh, chips production, uh, etc., to reduce uh, some of the dependencies that the, that Europe has on, uh, on you know, uh, producers from outside Europe. So, um, but I think we, we shouldn't be naive and we should actually also... Uh, so okay, invest in in growth of our tech uh, companies and not just in regulating. And what do what do you mean by investing in growth? So there are already uh, quite a few uh, institutions on the European level, for example, uh, that invest very real money into either VCs or even startups directly. If we talk about the EAC, what else do you think is lacking in this uh, support system on the European level? I would say um, it's not, you know, public money should go into funds and should be uh, allocated by professionals. And I think we, uh, we should avoid uh, too much direct investment by, uh, by government money. That doesn't really work well and it is not sustainable. So that's one. Two, um, take for instance the medical devices directive or regulation. We, uh, on the one hand, want innovation, but then we, uh, we set up regulation that completely destroys the opportunity in the market. So companies are forced to go to the US where they get FDA approval and uh, where, they can, where they have a bigger market and a much more efficient regulatory system. Um, and that we should be more aware of. You know, we are, we, we, you know, regulation can have, a, have an incredible um, 
impact, positive impact on uh, on um, on innovation. Like say, well, we stop the internal combustion engine by 2030. Will be an incredible driver of uh, electric vehicles. Uh, but sometimes we uh, we restrict innovation to such a degree that any kind of innovation has to go through so much certification or so much regulation that it's hardly possible for European companies to actually um, uh, develop a product and become uh, become successful. Right. And uh, to wrap it up, and uh, how do you see how do you see this change? What what needs to be done to change it? How do you talk to the relevant authorities to to change things? Um, well, we did a lot of that. Um, actually, now I I, I I don't waste too much time in, in doing that. I tell companies, you know, if you want to be uh, successful and if you need to go to the U.S. for that success, go to the U.S. And if a lot of companies go to the U.S., then policymakers will wake up and they say, hey, we're losing all our companies. And then they might finally look at why, you know, why is that? And what should we change in, in the way we work and you know, how we regulate? to actually make it more interesting for those companies to stay here. So for instance, now the IRA, um, you know, in, in, in the US makes, you know, through tax, uh, uh, tax ruling, make it very attractive for companies that are engaged in, you know, climate, uh, climate related activities to move in the, into the US. Uh, that kind of wakes up Europe is saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we want those companies to also stay here, we might also do something to make it more interesting here. And we, then we find that we can't use the fiscal instrument. We, uh, we go through a whole lengthy procedure and it's super complicated. And what I hope is that people see that and certainly say, well, this is not good enough. We have to change that. But you need pain to change and uh, and not just policy documents and uh, and reports. So I I've kind of spend my time where I think I'm most effective. And if I can support entrepreneurs be successful, uh, and if they need to go uh, abroad, then that's a consequence that, uh, yeah, that's a, uh, it's, it's a pity, but that's, uh, it's better than that we have no company at all. Absolutely. Constantine, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your answers. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. So this was the interview. I hope you did enjoy this uh, conversation. Uh, let us know what you think about it. In the meantime, we only have space for one more thing before we end this podcast. And this is your chance to win a ticket for our the next web conference that uh, happens in June next year in Amsterdam. This time, if you would like to win a ticket, all you need to do is uh, fill out a type form that we have uh, set up and you will find link in the show notes. Uh, we just wanted to ask you a few questions to learn more about people listening to this podcast, but also even more than that to learn how do you think we did in this first episode and what topics would you like us to cover in the future. So please go uh, into the show notes, uh, click that link uh, to the form and uh, fill it out. Next week in our next episode, we will uh, look into it. We will do a little lottery and then we will uh, send a message to the winner to uh, award them the ticket. In the meantime, this is all we have time for in this first episode of the TNW podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Linia, thank you so much for joining today. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to hearing what, what everyone thought of our first episode. Yeah, same here. Please help us spread the word in the meantime. Do tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on social media. Just search for the next web and you will find us. Music and sound engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email me with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at andre at thenextweb.com. In the meantime, have a good week. Talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.